Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. Go ahead and turn to John and his gospel in the 13th chapter as we are going to begin a new chapter in John and his gospel that we have been looking at for months now. You say, how many months? I don't know, and I don't really care. Um, I don't really measure those things out in time. I started verse 1 of chapter 1, and we worked through the gospel of John. Many have asked, when do you think we'll be done with the gospel of John? And to which I say, when we're done with the gospel of John. But oh, how rich has the study in God's Word been. As we look at the 13th chapter of John, however, I want you to see that this is a transitional chapter. And I'll be honest with you, it's a chapter that I have been looking forward to since we started. In fact, it is a series of chapters. And and I love this next series of chapters that we will be looking at in John's Gospel just prior to Jesus going to the cross. I love it because no longer do we see His public ministry to where he was performing miracles and preaching with great authority and power, only to have it fall upon deaf ears, upon those who would reject him of his own. Uh, We know this. The Word says that he came to his own, but his own received him not. But we transition in John chapter 13 in Jesus' life and ministry to a special time, a special time with his Disciples. John has been moving us to this point since we began because John, of course, being one of those disciples. And as he's telling this story, I have a sneaky suspicion that John couldn't wait till he got to this part as well. Because he knew he was one of those disciples that the Lord loved. And he loved with a unique and particular kind of love. We've seen Jesus in his very open and public ministry, preaching faith and repentance demonstrating in plain view for everyone to see signs and miracles to, to confirm to them that he truly is the Son of God, yet they would not, could not, did not believe. And then in John chapter 12, a few lessons ago, we saw a tragic event. Jesus let them know that the light is fleeting. And he gave them one last invitation, a general invitation. And we know that they refused it. And then it said that Jesus hid himself from them. Oh, did you know the unbeliever will only hear a certain amount of time as we spoke then? I don't know how many times. But oh, beware of this. There will be a time when Jesus withdraws and he hides himself. Your opportunity To hear that general call of the gospel will end. You will never hear it again. You will spend an eternity separated from God in hell. This has happened in John chapter 12 as we move to this. Jesus hides himself. And why does he hide himself? He hides himself so that he can reveal some things to his own, to his children, to his disciples. The light had faded from unbelieving Israel. He is hidden from them. They are turned over to their wicked ways. They are turned over to their unbelief. 
They will, in their unbelief, in just hours, sentence Jesus unlawfully to death, and they will crucify him. But here in John chapter 13, what a beautiful display and a special time with true believers. And he's going to spend the last hours of his life on this earth before his crucifixion, pouring his love into what Scripture calls his own. His own. I think about that because there was a time where I did not belong to him. But now I am his own. I have been purchased and bought with the price of Jesus Christ, and he's going to show this type of love here to these disciples. And we as true followers of Christ can know this is the same love that he shows to each of us. As we read this together, John chapter 13, let's begin our study today. It says, it was just before the Passover feast. It's very important that we know what was going on. And Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew that his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension were on the horizon. Having loved his own, write that down, underline that, his own. Having loved his own who were in the world. They were in the world. Oh, aren't you thankful that he removes us from the world and puts us in him? He loved his own who were in the world. Aren't you thankful that he brought you out of the world and brought you into himself? He now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He had peace. He had peace in the Father's plan. He had peace in the Father's will. We can learn a lot from Jesus here. In the midst of this, knowing that his betrayal was about to happen and that his death upon the cross was about to consummate, he knew this. He knew that God had a plan. And that God was going to take care of his plan. That he'd come from the Father and he was going to return to the Father. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing. I love this because Jesus wasn't concerned with himself. He didn't say, one of my closest friends is betraying me. He's not a true believer at all, and I'm going to have to go and die for these people. Well, that wasn't his attitude at all. He knew that God had taken care of everything before it ever began to happen. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, He poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm, I'm doing, but later you will understand. Underline that. Pay attention to that. That's going to come back to play in a moment. He says, you don't understand now, but you will. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He said, just, just wash me completely. Watch what Jesus says. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean. Please understand, as Jesus is speaking in the spiritual right now, that's why it said Peter didn't understand it then, but he will understand it later. He said, Peter, you're clean. And why did he say this? 
He says next, though not every one of you. Why did he say not every one of you? For he knew who was going to betray him. He knew that Judas was there, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Judas had not believed, therefore Judas was still unclean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. Verse 13 says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. He said, Don't forget that I am teacher and I am Lord. That is what I am. Watch what he says next. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. He said, I am your Lord and I am your teacher, but I'm also your servant. Oh, what a privilege to think as a child of God that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, became a servant of his own. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You'll be blessed if you do them. Now we know this, that Jesus was not creating another ordinance for the church to go along with baptism and the Lord's Supper, as many in error have tried to believe. He doesn't command the church to do this. In fact, this was a lesson that they didn't know what was really going on until later. How do we know that? He said, Peter, you don't understand now, but you will. This is all going to make sense, and isn't that true in our life as we study the Word of God? Sometimes we read something, and at the time it doesn't make sense, but as we grow in the Lord and as we live life, we realize later, now this makes complete sense. And so I want us today to look at what Jesus is really teaching them here. In a message entitled, Jesus' Love for His Own. Jesus' Love for His Own. We're going to be looking at that today, and I want you to understand this is not a popular doctrine. It's not a popular teaching, especially in our culture of equality, in our culture of fairness. But we're going to see this, that this is biblical, what we're going to look at. And how do we know that it's biblical? We are not going to veer from the Scriptures as we look at this verse by verse. I want you to see the first thing, if you're taking notes, that this love that Jesus had for his own was a special love. Verse 1 said, It was just before the Passover feast Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father, having loved his own. Having loved his own. We're going to see that this is a special love. He has withdrawn himself from the lost house of Israel, from the unbelieving mobs who followed him around just trying to get him to do another sign, who only believed intellectually in him after seeing all that they had seen. And now here in the privacy just he and his disciples, he shows them a special love, a love that he has for his own. Those who were in the world, past tense, but who are now in Christ. I know this is a hard pill for many to swallow. It's a hard pill for many to swallow. The fact that Jesus loves his own in a special way especially bothers some people. Let me tell you this, it bothers the unbiblical people. It bothers the people who have been indoctrinated to false teaching. False teaching that says God loves everyone the same. This sounds good on the surface, doesn't it? But it's totally unbiblical. The same God 
who we see displaying his special love for his believers here, also says in Romans chapter 9, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. It was God's prerogative. He shows mercy on whom he shows mercy. He can love to the degree of whichever he desires to pour out his love. Not only is this false idea that God loves everybody the same unbiblical, it's unrealistic. It's unrealistic for this fact. God displays himself as our heavenly father because he is. And we know this, that our Heavenly Father has a right to love His children with a more intimate and personal love than the common love that the world has. And it's hard for people to understand that until you actually think about it for just one moment critically. Isn't it interesting that for so many years in the church we have thrown out critical thinking? Don't throw it out. Your God, cra God crafted your mind so that you can use it. And so use it. Let's think about this. Is it okay for me? To love the children down in the nursery, as I assure you I do. Is it okay for me to love them differently than I love my own children? Do you love your own children differently than you love the children in your family, your nieces and your nephews? Of course you do. Oh, you may love another brother and sister in Christ, but do you love them like you love your own family? Oh, I can love my daughter-in-law, Casey, and I do. Sitting next to her is my wife. And let me just tell you this. I love my wife with a different kind of love than I love my daughter-in-law. And it's okay. That's realistic, isn't it? Well, wouldn't it seem to be realistic that God could love his children with a deeper love, a special love, than he loves everyone else? We know this, that God does, in a sense, love everyone else. And what is that sense? It is that common love. It is that common grace that he extends to even the unbeliever. Did you know this? Even today, the most vile unbeliever who is alive on this earth owes everything to the benevolent love of God. That God allowed him to, and he doesn't realize it, God allowed him to wake up this morning and he took his first breath. And if he has been blessed by God, even if he doesn't realize it, with a spouse, his wife was there next to him in bed, and he looked at her, and he should have been thankful to God because God showed him his benevolent love in allowing him to have her. And he, heard, he hears the pitter-patter of the feet of his children as they wake up, right at the crack of dawn, always on a Sunday. And God has showed his common love and his common general grace to this unbeliever. But it's different. When we get to the believers here, that Jesus is showing the full extent of his love. I'm thankful that by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that the Father loves me now that I am in Christ with a different love than he loves the lost world. We're going to see why that's important as we examine this. It's because he loves me like a son. Did you know this? At one time, I was a son of Satan. I was a son of sin. There was nothing about me that is lovable. But yet, when God changed my position in Christ, he loves me like he loves his only begotten son. I want you to think about that for a second, dear believer. I want you to think about that for just a moment. That God the Father loves us with the same love that he loves Christ the Son. 
Let that blow you away for just a moment. I know what you're going to say because it's what we ought to say. I don't deserve that. I know. Isn't grace amazing? Isn't it amazing? But we look at this love, this special love, and we see this about it. It's an exclusive love. Having loved his own. That tells us right there that the love that Jesus is about to pour out is different than the common love that he showed unbelieving Israel when he came and he gave them the general invitation to believe. He is showing an exclusive love for his own here. Those whom the Father has given him. Oh, do we not remember that in John chapter 6? All who the Father gives me will come and I... I will, in the last day, raise them up, and I'll drive none of them away. If they come, the Father has given them to me. That's how we know we belong to him. My sheep hear my voice. Chapter 10, what did it say? They obey. And he said, I'll lose none of all the Father has given me. They're going to come because they belong to him even before they knew it. This is an exclusive love, a love for his own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, you do, uh, do you not know that your body is a, the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Of course, he's talking to the believer because the Holy Spirit does not dwell in the unbeliever whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. It is with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that you were bought with a price. You were bought at that price according to the will of the Father because all who the Father has deemed to give to Christ will come. And he gives us that exclusive love. And he purchases us with his precious blood. And here in this text, Jesus is displaying this type of special personal love for his own. You can't get around it. You can't get around it. He showing his love for his own. This is the deep love that is reserved only for believers. It is the deep love that is reserved only for believers. Oh, I know people get upset with that immediately. Erase all of the back doctrine that you have received all this time. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 118.4. He said, let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. It is only those who fear the Lord who can understand the enduring forever love of God. Those who do not fear the Lord, I assure you this, will not experience this exclusive kind of love that comes from the Father in Christ. It is for the believers only. That is why John chapter 13 marks the transition here. His public ministry is over. This is private. He is showing his love for the saints. In fact, even in this context, he excludes Judas two different times so that you weren't confused to think that he might be loving Judas like he loves the others. He says, no, he's, he's not one of mine, and I know it. So it is this exclusive love that we have as believers. Very words of Scripture confirm this. How? His own. And how do you know you're his own? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. If you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you are his, and he has a special love for you that is exclusive to only those who believe, reserved only for the saints given by the Father to the Son, who then gives it to us. I know many say, well, but I thought God loves us all. Not in this way he doesn't. Not in this way. 
It says his own. Oh, you can flip that any way you want to in the original language. He's talking about his disciples. He loves us uniquely with an exclusive love and an everlasting love, just as the psalmist said. Those who fear the Lord will say, his love endures forever. Did you know this? The lost person can't say that. I want you to think about that for a second. The lost person can't say that his love endures forever. Because hell will not be a display of God's love. God displayed his love for them in creation and allowing them to be a part of it, just as Romans says. They're without excuse. He displayed his love for them every day in the common and general grace of God that he showers upon, as we've already talked about, even the most wicked and vile lost sinner. But the everlasting love of God is reserved only for the true children of God. It is perfect, and it is unending. In hell, I assure you of this, there will be no love from God. His love, even his general love, will be completely removed. Oh, you take one glimpse into hell in the Scriptures, and you'll realize this. There is no love in hell. There is only wrath and indignation and judgment. And let me just tell you this. A sovereign God is more than welcome to bring wrath and indignation and judgment against a wicked and vile, unbelieving sinner. And had he not rescued me by his grace and lavished this kind of love upon me in Christ, all I would have for all eternity was to look forward to not the love of God in hell, but the wrath of God in hell. Well, that ought to wake some of us up to a couple of things. One, to share the gospel with the lost. But two, to get on our face and thank God that he has richly blessed us with this type of everlasting love that is only for his children. His love for us is never going to end. It is different from that common love. It's different from common grace. His love for the believer will endure forever. Write it down. Bank on it. Be confident in it. Don't apologize for it. Oh, at this time, this is where many people want to apologize, as if you're being arrogant because you say that God loves me differently than he loves the wicked lost person who rejects him. I have no problem saying that. Why? Because the Bible confirms that. The Bible confirms that. And the thing is, as we look at that in Scripture, we know that he has a specific, everlasting love for his own. Now, that doesn't cause me to be arrogant. Why does it not cause me to be arrogant? Because I couldn't earn that kind of love. It causes me to fall on my face and say, Lord, how could you love me? Why would you love me? I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to aid you along in your will, yet you chose me to be a part of your plan by your own sovereign grace. I stand in awe of you, mesmerized by your love, that special love. What a sad day it will be for the unbeliever in hell when he realizes that the common benevolent love of God toward wicked sinners was not an enduring love. You know, part of hell will be this, oh, God loved me the whole time, and I rejected him. For the believer, those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you will forever enjoy the special love that God has for his adopted children who have been brought in through Christ Jesus. Don't feel bad about that. Give God glory for that. Get on your face and say, thank you, Lord. I deserved hell, rightfully so. You have loved me with a special love. 
here in 13. He shows his love for his own. It is special love. Secondly, as we look at this love, believers, you ought to rejoice at that. But it gets better. He shows us in verse 2 a selfless love. Watch what Christ does here in verse 2. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. He doesn't just list that randomly here. Pay attention to what's going on. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I want you to see the selfless love of Christ here. Oh, how glorious and how beautiful this is and how opposite it is from us and our humanity. Jesus lets us know I'm not in the dark about Judas. He knows all who are of his number. He knew exactly when and exactly how Judas was going to betray him. But it didn't knock him off of his course. What is his objective here? His objective is to show his own the full extent of his love. He didn't let Judas distract him. He didn't stop expressing his love for his own just because Judas was a traitor, just because there were unbelievers in the midst. Jesus didn't focus on those things. He focused on his own. You think about that for a moment in view of his death, in view of his sacrifice, in view of the beating that he was about to take. He takes this time to show his followers a selfless love. It was sacrificial in nature. Sacrificial in nature, how do I know? Because look at the timing of this. Verse 2 tells us the timing. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Why do you think that John included that? The evening meal was in progress or about to be served. Why is that so important? Let me tell you, this is a very important fact to consider here when you consider what this meal is. This meal is the Passover or the Paschal meal. This is the meal that they had been observing for hundreds of hundreds of years that pointed to Christ. And here Christ was in the middle of this meal saying this, my sacrifice is about to fulfill this whole thing. He stayed focused on why he came. This meal was to commemorate the Passover sacrifice during the Exodus. We know what happened. They would sacrifice the lamb. They put the, the lamb's blood on the sides of the door and over the door. And we know that the angel of death passed by. And all those who were covered in the blood, their children lived. All those who weren't, their children didn't. And everything about this meal pointed to Christ as he's speaking to those who are covered, his own. And he's saying, I have fulfilled this in your presence. His selfless love was sacrificial in nature. Oh, he could have taken a moment for just a little self-pity, just to have him a, a little pity party or a pout fest there, but Jesus didn't do that. He showed selfless love. He showed this selfless love to his disciples by fulfilling the Passover in their place for them. All that the Old Testament Passover had pointed to, Jesus said, I'm here. I'm here. First John chapter 4, in John's first epistle, he writes this in verse 10. This is love. Not that we 
loved God, the we he's talking about is the church. I assure you of that. That's who John wrote to. But that he loved us. He loves the church with a special kind of love. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Watch what he says. For our sin. For the sin of the church. Those who the Father in eternity past had already given to the Son. And Jesus says this selfless love that I am showing you as your Passover lamb that is sacrificial in nature is expressing to you the depths of my love. The depths of his love. Oh, when's the last time you just got blown away by that fact, professing Christian? The depths of the love of Christ for his own. Oh, when you realize how much you don't deserve it and how you couldn't earn it, now you're not worthy. All those things are correct, and it ought to cause you to fall on your face to know that it came as a selfless expression of the love of Christ to those who he was sacrificing himself for, his body, which is the church. His sheep, remember, he said that he lays his life down for it was sacrificial in nature as we look at this selfless love, but it was also saturated in humility. Saturated in humility, why is that important? Because it is a forgotten aspect of Christianity in our day. The humility of Christ. Do you know that in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 5, it says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to describe for us the attitude of Christ who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to hold on to. In fact, what he did is he released his glory so that he could come and be a servant in this very moment in John chapter 13 as he is showing true, deep, intimate love for his own, but made himself nothing. Oh, the display that we see here as Jesus takes off his outer garment, wraps himself with a towel, making himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Many people say he humbled himself and he went to the cross. No, he humbled himself and he went to the cross. Beyond just basic humility, he bore the humility of the cross in our stead and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see that his selfless love was saturated in humility. What a humble statement that the Lord makes here, that he takes upon himself the lowliest position in all of society in that day, the position of the foot washer. Position of the foot washer. This is the person who after a Someone was on a long journey through the arid, dusty terrain of Israel. Would come into a house and the lowest of slaves. The lowest one in ranking of the slaves would serve as a foot washer. When Jesus washes their feet, you could get no lower in this society. Please see the love that he loves his own with. Jesus taking that basin washing the filthy, dirty, nasty feet of his disciples who had been on a journey all through Galilee with him, who had seen him do great things and walk with him through the streets of every town that they went to, healing, preaching, 
And he could have stood up in this moment and said, look at me. I am the great healer. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the Messiah. You better recognize it now. But instead, he stoops. He stoops and he lowers himself to the position of nothing. The lowest of loads. The lowest of slaves. And in humility, he washes their feet. And it's this humility that sets the Lord apart, isn't it? Oh, many kings in the past came with great pomp and circumstances, but our king came in a lowly manger. And he positions himself as humble, saturated in humility, even now, just hours before his trial, his scourging, and his death. And he kneels and he washes the feet of unworthy, dirty disciples. Jesus displayed his selfless love here. Oh, please note, for his own. For his own. That's why he keeps making the point, Judas was not one of mine. He was there, but he wasn't there. He was there for only a purpose. But my own. I showered them with selfless humble love. Well, where would we be without the sacrificial, humble love of Christ for us? Where would we be? I'll tell you where Kirk Hall would be. Kirk Hall would be in the depths of the darkest hell where I belong. But it is Christ who shows a selfless love for his own. Oh, in all of his earthly ministry, never did he stop with the mobs of Israel with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the doubters. Never did he say, let me wash your feet to show you that I love everyone the same. No, but in these moments, just prior to his death, he showed his disciples, let me show you that I love you differently. Let me show you that I love you differently, that I came to stoop to the depths of lowliness so that I could rescue you to bring you up where I desire you to be, where the Father has declared that you will be. But we see the selfless love of Christ, and where would we be without it? The next thing we see as we continue in the text in verse 6 is the sanctifying love of Christ. It is a sanctifying love. In fact, what's going to happen here is Jesus is going to get doctrinal with Peter. He is going to throw out theology for him. And that's for all you people who say, I don't want doctrine and I don't want theology. I just want Jesus. That's a dumb statement. Don't make it. You can't have doctrine and theology and Jesus. Jesus is doctrine and theology. And here we see this. He's going to teach Peter a lesson about his sanctifying love. Verse 6, it says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Pay attention to that. I told you it's crucial. Understand, Jesus is giving him a veiled lesson that later on is going to click for Peter. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter was an extremist, wasn't he? You'll never have a part with me. Then bathe me, all of me, now. And Jesus answered, watch this. This is where Jesus teaches him sound doctrine. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. Now, you can read all of this backward and forward. Nowhere in any of this text in John did it say, and Peter stopped at the local bathhouse bath and took a bath. 
Jesus is speaking of something else, I assure you of that. He says, this whole body is clean, and you are clean. He declares Peter clean. He says, and you are clean. Now watch what he says next. Though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. He's saying, Judas, he's not clean. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. He said that because of Judas. So we see here that Jesus is teaching something specifically to a believer who has been cleansed. He's teaching Peter. Not his need for justification, but his continual need for sanctification. Why is this important? Well, we know the story, how it all pans out for Peter. Peter's going to deny Christ three times, but he's also going to be restored three times by the sanctifying love of Christ. Judas is going to totally sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, and he's not going to be saved because he was never justified, because he wasn't cleansed, because the sanctifying love of Christ was not for him. It's not for unbelievers. The sanctifying love of Christ is only reserved for those who have been made righteous, only for the justified. Those who are in Christ. Though Peter didn't realize it at the time, just as the text declared, he would understand later on the shore of Galilee. Where he jumps off the boat, he sees Jesus there cooking breakfast on the shore, and Peter disrobes and jumps off the boat and swims up to Jesus, thinking that Jesus was going to say, Peter, you've gone too far this time. You've really blown it. But know for each time, and this is the sanctifying love of Christ, pay attention to this, believers. For each time that Peter denied him, Jesus restored him. That is the sanctifying love for the believer. The unbeliever has no claim to this. They cannot be sanctified because they have not been justified. Christ is giving them a lesson here on the difference between justification and sanctification. And please see the difference of that. He, he distinguishes those who have had a bath. Those are the justified. Those who have been washed in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, who have faith in Him. You are clean. It is deemed finished. Positionally, you are forever saved. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. The Father has declared you righteous by faith in Christ and Christ alone. You'll be saved forever. But he gives Peter another lesson on sanctification. He says a person who's been cleansed by a bath doesn't need to be cleansed again. But there is the practical cleansing that we all need as we walk around in a defiled world. Oh, remember he said you're not going to understand this now, but you're going to understand it later. Oh, can you imagine there on the Sea of Galilee when Peter was restored? Oh, this is it. I denied him three times. He restored me three times. That is the sanctifying love of Jesus Christ for his own. Judas rejected Christ and then went out and hung himself to perish in hell for all eternity because the sanctifying love did not belong to him because he was not one of his own. It's no coincidence that John keeps reiterating this in this passage in John chapter 13, distinguishing Peter from Judas because his own receive a sanctifying love reserved only for those who have been made righteous in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us and establishes our position. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? I am his son. 
and I have been deemed his son. It has been declared that I am righteous in the eyes of God. Not because I have done anything good, but because the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ has been charged to my account. That's justification. However, I am not yet glorified. I'm not yet glorified. Oh, but there is a promise of glorification, isn't there? In Romans chapter 8, there is that promise. Those he foreknew, he predestined to conform to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. All of that in past tense. But between justification and glorification is when we walk in the sanctifying love of Christ as the Holy Spirit indwells. Who? Everyone? No, his own. And as the Holy Spirit indwells his own, he reminds us constantly of the sanctifying love that is found in Christ. It is his love that compels us to love others. It is his love that compels us to obedience. It is his love that compels us to live our life for his glory and to run from sin and to constantly turn to him. And that is for the believer only. The lost person who has not been justified cannot be sanctified. Why? The sanctifying love of Christ is just for the believer reserved for them and them alone, those who have been made righteous through the grace that God has shown us through Jesus Christ. And it results in practical and continual righteousness. This is sanctification. This is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7, where he says the things that I want to do, I can't do those things. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. I have this struggle that is going on. How many of you can relate with the Apostle Paul? Because we struggle in this world because of our flesh and because of sin. But aren't you thankful that it is the sanctifying love of Jesus Christ just as it protected Peter and secured Peter? It is the sanctifying love of Christ that continually secures us in our walk with Christ. It is his practical cleansing. It is his washing of our feet that continual making us righteous not only in our standing, that's justification, but in our state. He is constantly washing our dirty, defiled feet. We don't have to go back and ask for justification again. We don't have to go back and seek salvation again. We have that. What we do is we yield to the Holy Spirit, and as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we walk in the sanctifying love of Christ, and this will result in practical Righteousness. You will actually begin to live your life as a person who has been cleansed. Aren't you thankful for the sanctifying love of Christ? Romans chapter 3 talks about this. A righteousness from God. You don't have to turn there. When you have time, read it 21 through 26. A righteousness from God that has appeared apart from the law. This righteousness we know comes by faith. That's our justification. That righteousness is accredited to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is that sacrifice of atonement that God has presented. And those who have faith in his blood will be justified. I assure you of that. And I'm thankful because that passage goes on in 25 and 26 to say that God has been patient. And he didn't judge sin. And his wrath wasn't poured out so that you could believe. And I'm thankful for that. But it's after that. That is our cleansing. That is the imputed righteousness. That is our position before God, our standing. But our state is still in this world. And this world is an ugly place. 
I don't know about you, but I don't get it right all the time. Any of you get it right all of the time? All the liars in the house stand up. I don't get it right all the time. And when I don't get it right, I have this confidence in the sanctifying love of Christ. My confidence is this, that he gets up from being my Passover lamb. And he walks over, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he continually cleanses my dirty, nasty feet. And I'm thankful for the sanctifying love of Christ for his own. It is only for those he has justified. Jesus shows his love for his own here, not only by justifying them through being their Passover lamb, but also through sanctifying them as he continually washes the defilement of sin that they encounter in this world and makes them presentable to the Father. Oh, the psalmist said this, he, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I can say this, oftentimes my hands aren't clean until Christ with his sanctifying love comes and he washes all of the defilement away so that I am presentable to the Father. What an honor it is to be his, to be his own to experience that special love, that selfless love, that sanctifying love. Jesus doesn't stop here, nor will I. Verse 12, he continues. Verse 12, we see a serving love for his own. Verse 12 says, And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. That is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Oh, what an interesting statement that he's making. He's about to give these men authority like men of this world have never seen. He's going to literally give them authority to do exactly what he has been doing to confirm their apostolic office. He says, and don't you forget, don't you forget that you're nothing. Continue to serve God and to serve others. He says, I've also set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus gives this example of his serving love to his own for a purpose, and I want you to see that purpose. It's a lesson that we could all use. Number one, as an example. As an example, verses 13 through 16 clarify that. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Jesus didn't have to do this. He did it as an example. That a teacher is not above serving others. He's showing them this. He's showing them the serving love of Christ as an example of how we are to serve and love one another. Mark chapter 10, verse 43, the Lord says this, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your, what, servant. Wasn't it interesting in a day and an age where all these so-called popular Christian leaders want to be something or be somebody? Jesus said, be nothing. Be a servant. Why is that important? Because that's the example that Christ has given us. He's given us the example of being nothing for the glory of God. And whoever wants to be first must 
be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Who are those many? His own. He didn't say he gave his life as a ransom for everyone, for many. His own. He shows them this serving love. An example of how we are to serve others. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Are you thankful that Christ became poor and he took on the nature of a servant so that you could inherit an inheritance from a God who you had offended your entire life? We owe it all to his grace, don't we? He gives them this example of his serving love so that they can learn to serve others with the same kind of love. Christ showing his humble attitude of service toward his own. It ought to motivate us. It ought to motivate you today to show that kind of love to other people. As believers, following Christ's example. What a new thought. Isn't it interesting that Christ came and lived this life as our example? Those of us who belong to him. But most of the time, people don't look to Christ as an example. They look to him as a genie in a bottle who can fix all of their problems. But he is our example. He is our example of how we are to share serving love with others. Well, Paul understood this. In Galatians chapter 5, he wrote this in verse 13. He said, you, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Oh, he's talking to the Gentile believers who are free. There was a little skirmish in the church because they were free to live one way in their mind. And the Jews, well, they weren't free to live another way because they had been brought up under the law. He's saying, don't use your freedom to indulge in your sinful nature. Rather, he says, here's the important thing. Serve one another in love. Verse 14, Paul says this, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are you seeing the example of Jesus and mimicking that heart of servitude? Serving God and serving God. Others offering yourself up. Are you concerned with you? How you can gain notoriety through Christianity? Oh, isn't that disgusting in our culture? Hipster preachers and rock star worship leaders. It's nauseating. We must become less so that Christ can become more. We must decrease, as John the Baptist said, so that Christ can increase. He's giving us this example. Not only is it an example of his serving love or by his serving love, it's also an encouragement. This ought to encourage us. What should it encourage us to do? Watch this. It should encourage us to do. Verse 17, he says, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed. doesn't really stop there, does it? You will be blessed if you do them. For those of you who are writing notes out in your margin how you should serve the Lord, they're right next to the ones you wrote last time when you looked at this text. But if we just know it and we don't do it, we're not showing the serving love of Christ to others. He said, you will be blessed if you do it. To know to do right and to choose to do wrong, James says it is what? Ladies, you've been going through the Bible study in James. What does it say? 
It's sin. And hasn't the church sinned long enough in this area? It's been all about you and all about your agenda and all about your ideas and all about your thought needs and not about Christ, not about serving others. Jesus gives us an example, and he gives us this example to encourage us, to encourage us to serve and to love God and to serve and to love others. And he says, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed for offering yourself to others in the name of Christ. You will be blessed when you pour out your life as an offering to the Lord by serving others. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, Jesus promises blessing for his servants. Watch this, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. You know what the greatest blessing is? It's not money. It's not houses, it's not land, it's not status, notoriety. You know what the greatest blessing is? Being first in the eyes of God. And how do you become first in the eyes of God? You look at the serving love of Jesus and you let that serve as an example to you and you let that encourage you to lower yourselves for others that God would be glorified, that the gospel would be proclaimed, that lost sinners would come to repentance. Jesus promises a blessing for those who practice serving love just as he did. You know, the sad thing, most of the church in our day is missing out on this blessing, aren't they? Jesus was not saying you're going to be blessed if you walk around and say, hey, uh, can I wash your feet, sir? He already told us, this is a lesson you're not going to understand now, Peter, but you're going to understand it later. Oh, Peter understood that lesson, didn't he, as he laid his life down for Christ and for others. Paul understood that as he laid down his life for Christ and for others. Everything that they did was about Christ and others. Well, my prayer to God is this, that we as those who claim Christ would understand that, that we are to lay our lives down for Christ and others. What a joy it is, I assure you of that. What a joy it is to know that your life is secure in Christ. You no longer have to worry about that. All you need to be concerned with is the lives of others. How can you glorify God by giving yourself wholeheartedly and completely to Him and to others as you serve Him? So we've seen Jesus' love for His own. Again, this should not make us arrogant as many would accuse us of proclaiming. It should make us humble fall on her face and say, God, how could you love me with such great love? How could you love me in the way that you do when all I have ever done in and of myself is blaspheme you and bring reproach upon your name? But oh, I am thankful that in Christ Jesus I have been made yours. And because I am yours, you love me with this love that we have seen displayed here in John chapter 13. What a privilege it is to be one of his own. To really belong to Christ. To experience his special love, his selfless love, his sanctifying love, and his serving love.
believer, listen to me. Rejoice. Rejoice that you have been loved with a particular and special love from God in Christ Jesus. But unbeliever, I would ask that you would listen to me for one more moment as well. Oh, granted, you can claim that God loves you and he does with his benevolent love, proven by the fact that you're here and you're still alive, and that he has allowed you to be alive long enough so that you can hear the gospel message that has been proclaimed today, so that my prayer being he could save your wretched soul this very day. But believer, perhaps you're missing out on this intimate, deep love and communion and fellowship that I have been talking about today. In fact, you say, why is this preacher so goofy with tears in his eyes? These tears are in my eyes because I know how much I don't deserve this. But yet he's lavished it upon me. What would you surrender today to Christ as he lavishes his love upon you? Oh, don't settle for the common love of God and the general love of God. Today, as he opens your heart to see your need for Christ, would you surrender to Christ by faith and trust and believe in him and him alone, repenting of your sin? I assure you of this. As he begins that work in you by the power of his Holy Spirit, that good work that he is beginning in you, he will carry it unto completion. He will carry you to the point where you cry out to Christ to save your very soul today. Would you cry out to Christ? Would you be saved today? not just settling for a passing benevolent love that will be removed when you're judged and cast into the lake of fire. Would you trust Christ for his enduring, faithful, forever love for his children? Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you thanking you for the word of God because it is true. God, I pray today that your truth would set the most wicked sinner free. Set them free from the hatred of unbelief and sin. Open their eyes to see your glorious love for your own. Lavish that upon them by your grace. Lord, we depend on you. We cannot save a soul. Through the power of your spirit and by your grace, according to your will today, you can open the eyes of the vile sinner. You could cause a desperation in his heart to come forth that he will call on the name of Jesus be forever saved. Lord, would you do that work in our midst today? Would you rescue yours for you? That you may show them, as you showed Peter, your love for your own. That you did truly come to die for them, to cleanse them of all their sin, and to be Lord of their life and eternity. We give you all the praise for what you're going to do now as we yield to your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember... You are light in the darkness.